0: Uh, In 2012, the New York Times published an article called, Why Waiting is Torture. And it opens up with a situation where airport executives were receiving a lot of complaints about long waits at baggage claims. Pretty sure that a lot of us have probably experienced that. In response to these complaints, they did what would seem to me to be very logical. They increased the number of baggage handlers, and they were able to get the wait time to just eight minutes total but the complaints still came in. And so the executives decided to take a different approach. They found that it took passengers only a minute to walk from their arrival gate to baggage claim, and from there they had to wait seven minutes to get their bags, so in other words, most of their time was spent waiting around doing nothing. And so the airport decided that they would move their arrival gate away from the main terminal and route the bags to the furthest carousel Now, passengers had to walk six times longer to get to their bags, but their wait time at the carousel shortened, and complaints dropped to nearly zero. And the article talks about how people just need something to occupy their time, and when they had that, the wait felt shorter, even though it was the same. If you've ever wondered why elevators have, like, mirrors everywhere, you know, it just sort of feeds into our self-centeredness, where we need something to do. We need to be able to check our makeup or check if there's something in our teeth. Anything is better than doing nothing and waiting. Dark, quoting the article, says, Americans spend roughly 37 billion hours each year waiting in line, and the dominant cost of waiting is an emotional one. Stress, boredom, that nagging sensation that one's life is slipping away. The last thing we want to do with our dwindle, dwindling leisure time is squander it in stasis. And so if you've ever been in like a waiting line, like at Target or somewhere, that's why they have so many things for you to look at while you're waiting. And so many like little instantaneous or like purchases because anything is better than just standing there. It wasn't that long ago at a DG event where we had like a joint DG event where one of the questions was basically like, is there one area you wish you could really grow in? Like, what's that one area that you wish you can grow in? And for me, it was a very, very quick answer. It was patience. It was patience. It's always been an area of weakness for me, and it shows up in a, different, a lot of different ways, and maybe you can relate to some of these. One area, it's hard to be patient when things just don't go my way or things don't go our way. Quoting Margaret Thatcher, the former prime minister of the UK, she said this, I am extraordinarily patient, provided I get my my own way in the end. I get that. I'm very patient, assuming there's no delays, no disappointments, no interruptions, no tantrums, no failures, and everything in life is smooth. I have a plan for my life, but what's happening here? I had a plan for my day. Things aren't going the way I will them to go. They seem to be going in the wrong direction. And underneath all that is this assumption that my will be done. And it's difficulty that often reveals our lack of patience or long suffering. Patience which at its heart is a loss of contentment when things don't go the way we hoped or expected. And being like a type A type of personality, Everything in me values control. I want speed. I want convenience. I want efficiency, fulfillment, things to be wrapped up nice and clean. I don't like unfinished business. I don't like things that don't have closure. And so in a world of disruptions, dis- uh, delays, disappointments, and inefficiencies, in this broken and fallen world, my patience is constantly tested. It's also hard for me to be patient with others, especially when I see their flaws, blemishes, or sins. We think as parents, if you're a parent or a married couple, oftentimes we say, I didn't, you know, they, I didn't know I was that impatient until I got married or until I had kids. Well, they just revealed who you already were. It was already there. And if I want to examine if I'm truly loving, what's the first thing that Paul says about love in 1 Corinthians 13? Love is patient, and immediately I could stop there. I stopped there, I failed this test. I don't make the list, let's just stop there Paul, I'm out. We don't need to go any further, I lack love because I lack patience for my wife, for my kids, for my church, for my family, for my loved ones. Love is patient. A verse that is very, very hard, I think, if we read it all, if we really try to obey it, a verse that's really hard to obey is 1 Thessalonians 5.14, and it says, And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. And he's telling those in the family of God to be patient with those who are weak, flawed, and blemished and sinful. Be patient with them. And even in the rebukes or warnings or admonishments, it says, it should be done with patience. Haven't haven't I told you this multiple times? I've told you this thing multiple times. How come you don't get it? You're still doing it. And again and again, that's the tone of my voice, and it's a hard verse to obey, where even in that situation, I'm called to be patient. It's also hard, even if we're believers, we have to acknowledge there are times where it's hard to be patient with God. We have a vision. Maybe you even have like a vision of what God has given us, what we should be doing, but we have to wait and just live ordinary lives. You can't fast forward. We're waiting for the future, thinking about tomorrow, what life should be. We want clarity in a situation. You feel like you're in this already, but not yet. You're in this in-between stage of life. And these situations, oftentimes, the waiting is like the worst part. The anticipation is the worst part. You have some surgery coming up, and it's the three weeks leading up to it. That's the worst part. And we eventually fall into what the psalmist says. And let me just read through these. Psalm 6.3. Can we put up these psalms? Psalm 6.3. I'll read it from up there because I think my version is wrong here. My soul also is greatly troubled, but you, O Lord, how long? Psalm 31, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? Psalm 13.2. How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? Psalm 35.17. How long, O Lord, will you look on? And lastly, Psalm 119. How long must your servant endure? Or your servant wait, And how long is a common complaint in the Bible? And it shows up over 30 times. And eventually you may say this so often, you end up at Psalm 69.3, which says, I am weary with my crying out. My throat is parched. My eyes grow dim with waiting for my God. And we just get tired. We get patient, impatient with others, impatient with the situation that doesn't go our way. We get impatient with God. We can even get impatient with ourselves. It's like, man, you know, why is it taking so long? Why, why am I failing so much? Why am I growing so excruciatingly slowly, if at all? Life in a fallen, broken world with all its interruptions, distractions, and heartbreaks reveals our lack of patience. Our children reveal our lack of patience. People reveal our lack of patience. But for God, His rebellious children reveal His perfect patience. We looked at this last week where Paul was saved in order to demonstrate Jesus' perfect patience as an example for all in the future who would believe. And this is true of just anything in Christianity. We cannot talk or we shouldn't talk about what we are to do until we talk about first what God has done. We have to look at what God has done first. In order for us to grow in patience, we got to look at the infinite riches of God's patience towards us, towards you. We're undeserving. We're rebellious. We're imperfect, and yet God is patient with us. We are all works of grace in progress, and yet God loves us and is long-suffering for us. That's where it has to start. And again and again in Scripture, we see that God's children are rebellious. In Isaiah chapter 1, verse 2 through 3, Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children have I reared up and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner, and the donkey knows its master's crib. But Israel does not know, my people do not understand. And Israel continued to rebel against God, and the disciples continued to rebel against God. And as we grow, when you're first a Christian, you're like, man, the disciples are such idiots, right? Like, these 12 disciples, why didn't they get it? But as you grow in the Christian faith, you're like, I'm more like them than I thought. And yet he is patient. He is long-suffering. He is sympathetic. He's constantly interceding for you, even when you are up and down in your faith. He's not like us. He doesn't blow up in his impatience. In Exodus 34, when Moses pleads to see God's glory, how did God reveal himself? It says, The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Now, it doesn't say God never gets angry. Because there are situations where anger, anger is merited, but he is slow to anger. The idea here is that God is, like the picture here, it's sort of a strange picture. He's long of nose, and the picture is one of a horse's nose. Or when like we're angry, maybe our nose, I, I don't do this, but maybe for some of you, maybe like your, your nose starts to flare or something like that. That's the picture here where God, in contrast, doesn't have a short fuse. He's slow to heat up. He's always self-controlled. And his anger is constantly longing for repentance and desiring to forgive. And going back to 1 Thessalonians 5.14, we're patient with sinners because we're still one. We're patient with the idleness of others, the greed of others, the lust of others, the anger of others, because we can always see something of their sin in us. If it wasn't for the grace of God, where would we be? And impatience with sinners reveals a small view of God's mercy and patience towards us. Even in our rebukes, it should be done with a humble awareness of our own sinfulness. God is so patient with us. And so we are called to be patient with others. How does impatience show up in your life? You know, I'm impatient with those closest to me, with their sin, those who are weak. I'm impatient with myself. I doubt God's work in my life because I don't immediately see fruit. What does it look like for you? In what area of your life are you struggling to demonstrate uh, patience? Is there a particular person with whom you find it difficult to be patient? How does that impatience manifest or reveal itself? For some people it's anger, annoyance, sarcasm, Judgment, discontentment, and what's the underlying reason for your impatience? Pride, control, fear, selfishness, distrust, unbelief. And lastly, how can we keep growing in this area? How can we move from immature to mature? Scripture always points us to Christ, and if you weren't here last week, that's what we looked at in First Timothy chapter 1, verse 12-17, through 17. but today I want to look at passages where Scripture points us to the example of other believers. And I'm looking at these examples because they are far from perfect examples of patience. They're, in fact, very imperfect, and yet Scripture puts them forth as examples for us to take note of and learn from. And so we're going to look at first, Abraham's impatience, uh, imperfect patience in the waiting room. Secondly, we'll look at Job's imperfect patience in the waiting room. And then I'll close with some final thoughts for us as we wait or are in the waiting room. And just to give you a heads up, when I say final thoughts, doesn't that doesn't mean like short thoughts, okay? So again, don't let me like trick you when I say like, let me give you some final thoughts. There's actually good amount of the sermon left after that. Okay. And so (laughs) final, but not short. Okay. And so let's look at Abraham's imperfect patience in the waiting room. Cause you know, you know, if you've ever been in like a waiting room, it's, it's just boring. It feels like a waste of time. We do everything we can to eliminate that period in the waiting room. Now we can reserve ahead of time so you don't have to get there. But a lot of us, maybe you feel like you're in the waiting room of life. You're just in this sort of wasted period. And I want to challenge that. And looking at Abraham, if you're not familiar with the story of Abraham in Abraham, or in, in Genesis 12, God promised Abram, he would become the father of many. And at that point he was 75 years old. Sarah, or Sarai at that time was 65 years old. In Genesis 16, 11 years have passed. Abram is now 86, and Sarai is 76. And they know the promise of God, but they attempt to skip the waiting. They get impatient. Genesis 17, Abraham is now 99 when God has to remind Abram of the promise he had made 24 years earlier. In Genesis 21, finally, when Abraham is 100 years old, he gives birth to Isaac, the promised child. But he had to wait 25 years. Why did Abraham have to wait 25 years? And why does God make his people wait? Constantly in the Bible, according to our timeline or our timing, we see God moving so slowly. We see it's common for God's people to need patience. Joseph waited 13 years for his dream to happen, Jacob waited 14 years to receive his bride, Moses waited 40 years working as a shepherd. The Israelites waited hundreds of years before they were freed. David, young David, waited 14 years before he became king. Israel waited thousands of years for the Messiah. And even now in Romans 8, it says creation is waiting and groaning as it waits to be restored and redeemed. And from our point of view, waiting is useless. It's inactivity. It's one of the least productive things you can do. It's not efficient. When you're in the doctor's office sitting there just waiting on the phone or looking at a magazine, that feels like wasted, unoccupied time. But look at how Paul in the book of Romans, in Romans chapter 4, verse 18 through 21, I'll just read it for us. He says, talking about Abraham, in hope he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. Abraham, he did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old. Sort of a mean thing to say, right? It's like good as dead, right? Uh, Since he was about 100 years old when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's, Sarah's womb. Verse 20, no unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. And we tend to think of Abraham as a man of faith, but he actually started as just such a weakling. And we see that journey from Genesis 12 to 22. He started off as a weak, doubting man. He laughed at God's promises. And there were times when Abraham lost his patience and he tried to take things into his own hands. He became impatient and worked out of the flesh, not out of the promises of God, not out of trusting the promises of God, but he's like, I'm going to take things into my own hands, working out of unbelief, the power of self. And he said, God God said I'm going to have a child, but it's not happening biologically. It seems impossible. Forget it. I'll take things into my own hands. I'll have a child with Hagar. Not with Sarah, his wife, but with Hagar. And this leads to what is called the child of the flesh in Galatians chapter 3 and 4. His name is Ishmael. Ishmael is known today as a patriarch and one of the main prophets of the religion of Islam. And when it comes to taking things into our own hands, I think we can all understand this. It's so much easier in our impatience to just go ahead of God, to take things into our own hands, grumble, complain, criticize, try to control. It's a war for control. But in the waiting, Abraham grew strong in his faith. It wasn't useless. It was a productive 25 years. God wasn't off doing something else. This wasn't like a stop or an interruption in God's plan. He was in the waiting and he was using the waiting. And then in Genesis 22, you see after the 25 years of waiting, after that, he has Isaac. And then you see the completion of Abraham's faith. He's become so strong in his faith where even he is willing to sacrifice his own son. What was one of the main tools or instruments that God used to form Abraham? It was waiting. So productive. Paul Tripp, one author, he says, remember, waiting isn't just about what you are hoping for at the end of the wait, but also about what you will become as you wait. And and if you're a Christian, if you're a believer, and you're in a season of waiting, it's not pointless. God is doing something. Romans 8 is coming true that God will use all things, including waiting, to make you more like his son. It's an essential part of the plan. Waiting might be one of the most productive and fruitful things you could ever do. It's a powerful tool in God's hand. And we need to go under the scalpel. It's a precision tool. God is doing a surgical, precise uh, surgical strike against your sin. Waiting breaks down and does surgery on our pride. It removes our pride. It reminds us that we're creatures. And waiting also teaches us in patience, uh, patience. And we need to learn that, especially young people. We need to learn that in today's day and age. To be humble and to be patient. And some of you trolls are saying, like, are you saying you're young people? Right? I put myself in young people. Right? I am young people. Okay? I know, I know you jerks out there, they're saying you're not young. Right? But... We need to be humble, and we need to be patient. Like, I I think um, it's an area I sympathize with, but one of the areas we get really impatient is with our own spiritual growth and the spiritual growth of others. It drives us crazy that, man, I'm so slow to grow. We want instant results. We want Christ-likeness overnight, but there's a delay. We hate delay. And here's like what I think of when I think of like constantly, like, oh, why am I not growing? Why am I not growing? Imagine a seed that's been planted in some soil. You can't necessarily see that it's growing. And so in our impatience, what do we do? We keep digging it up. We keep questioning it and digging, and that only disrupts the process. We need patience and trust in the promises of God that there's energy moving beneath the surface, that it takes time for fruit to be born. There's always a natural delay between harvesting and planting. You can't harvest in the same season that you planted. It takes time. And, you know, in our impatience, I'll be like, man, I I look back on the last month, like, man, I don't see clear growth in this last couple months. But rather, I look back on my last 10 years and like, wow, something has changed. When I look back at who I was 10 years ago, I was like, that guy was an idiot. He was an idiot. And 10 years from now, I hope I look back at who I am today and and I'm like, that guy was an idiot. Which basically means I hope I'm basically always an idiot, right? (laughs) But we just want results overnight. But it takes time, and so stop digging up all the time, disrupting the process. Trust in God's promises. Luke 8.15 I'm so thankful for this last part of this. Luke 8.15, as for that in the good soil, there are those who, hearing the word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart and bear fruit with patience. And as a side note, if that's how long it takes for me to stop being an idiot, where I'll start seeing progress in my marriage, in my life, in my faith over decades, don't expect others to stop being an idiot in one day, one year or even multiple years. People don't change overnight. It's a slow process. But God is moving. And whatever you're waiting for, I don't know what it is, whether it's a graduation, or to get married, or engagement, or a new job, or retirement, whatever you're waiting for, or maybe something suffering in your family, someone is sick, and you're waiting for healing, I'm not here to tell you that you're not going to have to wait. You may have to wait longer, but will your waiting produce a faith that's stronger or weaker? It comes down to what kind of attitude characterizes your waiting. And we'll talk more about that at the end. We need to learn to wait. We need to accept that there's delay. That's what Abraham learned from Genesis 12 to 22. We see he slowly becomes the father of faith as he waits upon the Lord and believes in his promises, fully convinced that he is able to do what he said. He was far from perfect. We see that. And yet, he is the father of our faith. And another example of patience that I find really encouraging, it's an imperfect example of patience, and yet, again, it's commended in Scripture. It's the impatience, the imperfect patience of Job. And we read this as the opening in James chapter 5. It says, Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and late rains. And so James is talking to those who are suffering, they're being oppressed in this chapter by rich unbelievers who are condemning them and murdering them. They're not paying them their daily labor or their daily wages. And the prayers of these oppressed people have reached the Lord of hosts earlier in this chapter. But he tells them in the meantime, he says, you have to be patient One thing you need in the face of suffering is patience. In verse 7, in verse 10, he mentions patience. And in verse 11, he talks about a variation of the word patience and steadfastness or endurance. And one example he points to is the prophets. The prophets, these were men who wholeheartedly gave themselves to God and yet they suffered and they didn't understand. There was a lot of things about the prophets' lives that didn't make sense. And it's just a reminder for me and a challenge for all of us that when you follow Jesus, again, he's not here to take away your problems. Actually, in some sense, he will add to your problems. He's not here to make your life easy. He's here to refine you and make you more like Christ. That's what we see in the prophets, and we see that actually in the person of Job. James points to Job in the old version that says, have you heard of the patience of Job, or have you heard of the steadfastness of Job? And that's super interesting to me, because if you've read Job, you know he was faithful, but he was far from perfect. Job suffered like no one else before. He loses everything. All ten of his children die in a terrible accident, Then he's robbed by marauders. His livestock are decimated. All his servants are murdered. And yet in chapter 1 to chapter 2, you see that Job is an example of just godly submission and suffering in the midst of suffering. But then you go into this long period where Job had to endure the silence of God for a long period of suffering. And in chapter 3, things start to go south. He spends an entire chapter just blasting and cursing the day he was born. And he goes on this long monologue, challenging his friends and even challenging God. In Job chapter 13, it says, verse 23, How many are my iniquities and my sins? Make me know my transgression and my sin. Why do you hide your face and count me as your enemy? Speaking to God. He just thinks God is now ignoring his faithfulness and treating him as an enemy. In Job chapter twenty-three, verse three through four, he's talking again about God. He's like, "Oh, that I knew where I might find him, that I might come even to his seat. I would lay my case before him and fill my my mouth with arguments." And we see his confidence and his faith starting to waver. It's starting to get weaker. He says things about God which he now later admits are not true. He insists, "I'm righteous." but at the expense of God's justice. And there are points throughout the book of Job where now he sounds strained, confused, sad, and angry. He has a lot to say and he doesn't hold back. Give me an explanation, God. Vindicate me, God. Show the world I'm righteous. I want to face you, God. I want to appear before you. I want to argue with you. I am in the right. None of this makes any sense. And so Job keeps saying, God, I want to face you and... That's exactly what God does. He he shows up. He shows up. In Job chapter thirty-eight through forty-one, um, chapter thirty-eight through chapter forty-one, basically you see the Lord show up, and it says in chapter thirty-eight, then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, "Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge, dressed for action like a man? I will question you, and you make it known to me." Later, as an example of just how amazingly different God is from us. Can you send forth lightning that they may go and say to you, here we are? Who darkens my counsel? Who could stop my plan? Let's look at your knowledge, Job. How much do you know? Do you really understand the difference between you and me? The lightning bolts report to me. Before they go, they show up and say, here we are. And I send them. Do they report to you, Job? And in chapter 40, and the Lord said to Job, Shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? He who argues with God, let him answer it. And then here's Job's like final like humbling. Then Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I have spoken once, and I will not answer twice. But I will proceed no further. And Job in his impatience questioned God and even made accusations. But what's interesting to me is how God describes Job afterwards. In Job chapter 42, verse 7, it says, After the Lord had spoken these words to Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, one of his friends who were giving bad advice, My anger burns against you and against your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. And then we see at the end of the book of Job, in verse 12, and the Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning, in verse 17, and Job died an old man and full of days. Job was far from perfect in his trust, but in all these complaints, in all these questions and even accusations, they were the questions of a believer. They emerged out of a genuine and sincere relationship with God. He never turned his back on God. He processed and faced the Lord at their heart all of his complaints within, at the very heart of it, there was a desperate and dependent faith and trust. He knew God is where the answers were. And I think that's why God praises him. While he was in the waiting room, Job was a model of like godly laments and complaints. And going back to the book of James, James gives some commentary for us regarding Job, James says that we have the benefit of hindsight when it comes to Job. We see where God was going in Job's story, even though Job couldn't see it. In James chapter 5, he says, you have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. And what marked Job's suffering? Like, what did, How does James describe it? It's a story of the Lord's compassion and mercy. He sees, we see now looking back on Job, the big picture of God was holding him in the dark and working to transform him. And in the end, we see Job bow down in worship and adoration, and he's blessed. And the logic here. What James is saying here is that if God was doing something in the darkness of Job, you can be sure whatever pressure your life is under, that God has the same purpose for you if you're his child. One day we'll see the God, that the Lord was being merciful and compassionate. And this is what we're all waiting for when all this will be revealed. When will it all be revealed? When will the picture become clear? At the second coming of Christ. That's what we're called to wait for. That's why we can be patient now. In verse 7 of James chapter 5, Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. It's talking eschatology. It's talking about the second coming of the Lord. Verse 8, You also be patient, establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. And it's interesting how patience is connected to the return of Christ. Then and only then will all the loose threads of your life, you know, I hate unfinished business. I hate how there's not closure. Then and only then will we have full closure of all the loose threads of our lives. Only then will it all make sense. When we'll have the benefit of hindsight and look back and say, the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Right now, maybe in your life, there's a law of uncertainty, questions, suffering, difficulty. We want an explanation. And we'll look back, and we'll see the entire picture that God is painting in history and in our lives, and we'll say, that's amazing. I wish I waited patiently during that time. It didn't make sense to Job, and yet God is working, and it won't always make sense to us, but it will when Christ returns. Do you wait for the coming of the Lord? the return of the Lord Jesus, that's the secret, he says here, to being established and patient. That's the next major cosmic event on God's calendar. And the writers in the New Testament are constantly calling us, especially those who are hurting and suffering, to look back at the cross, look back at the cross, but also look ahead to the second coming of Christ. What are you waiting for right now? What you wait for tells us a lot about who you are. It reveals a lot about who you are and possibly the idols in your life. Is there something you're waiting for ahead of Christ? Is Jesus the primary object of your waiting? Because if Jesus is not the primary object of your waiting, everything else will consume us. Quoting John Piper, and it's a long quote, but I'll just read it for us, and I'll read it for us slowly. It's long, but he says this. Imagine that Christ is like the sun at the center of the solar system of your life, the massive sun, 330,000 times the mass of the earth, the sun which holds all the planets in orbit, even little Pluto, 3.6 billion miles away. So it is with the supremacy of Christ in your life, all the planets of your life, and by planets, he's referring to all the different things we might find ourselves waiting for, like a graduation, a relationship, children, retirement, all these little planets of your life are held in orbit by the greatness and the gravity and the blazing brightness at the supremacy of Christ at the center of your life. And if he ceases to be the bright, blazing, satisfying beauty at the center of your life, the planets will fall into confusion and a hundred things will be out of control and sooner or later they will crash into destruction. Jesus is the blazing sun at the center of your solar system. He is the ballast at the bottom of your little boat. He is the foundation that holds up the building of your life. Without him, the planets fly apart, the waves overwhelm and the building will one day fall. In our lives, there are a lot of good things we can wait for, but among all those things, there's only one ultimate thing that every Christian should be placing their greatest hope and longing in. That ultimate thing is the person and presence of Jesus Christ. And one good thing that suffering does, it just... It makes us want to go to heaven. Not in some weird, demented way, just this world will not satisfy it. I want Christ to return or I want to go to heaven. We're called to wait upon the return of Christ. Now, let me give us some final thoughts. Final again, final, but not short to help us in our battle with impatience. Some applications I want to pull from Job and and the book of James. We just talked about waiting for Christ's return, but there's another concept in the Bible that I don't think we, I feel like I rarely hear people talk about it, but it comes up again and again. It's related to the return of Christ. It's this concept of waiting upon the Lord. Waiting upon the Lord. And that comes up again and again in the Old Testament. It's basically like the Old Testament version of being patient and trusting God. A couple months ago, I was driving and I saw, uh, I was behind this car, and I saw this car with all these bumper stickers on its back, like covered bumper stickers. And one of the bumper stickers, I could tell, it was like a little bit like a longer one. It was, you know, let go and let God. But what was interesting to me was the first part of that bumper sticker was covered, and so what I saw was, go and let God. And I actually sort of like that, because I've always been the type, and I think oftentimes in our Western Christianity, we're the type where we resist rightfully this philosophy of let go and let God. Oftentimes it leads to a passive Christianity where honestly things just don't get done. And it's frustrating for people. But the first word was blocked out, and it says, go and let God. And, you know, there's this level in the Bible where it's like, we need to do what we're called to do. Make every effort. But then let God. Wait upon the Lord. And in our resistance to any let go and let God, we go to an unbalanced extreme where we got to do where we think it's up to us, where it's all about our efforts. I gotta be the greatest problem solver in my life. We gotta change things, we gotta change, I gotta change my spouse. I have to fix this person. We have to be in control, and at the heart of that is impatience. Again, I was driving on the freeway yesterday and it was uh, me in my black Sienna with Tabby in the backseat, driving nice and coasting on the freeway, nice and safe at a normal pace. And I see this car next to me start cutting me off, going left and right, left and right, trying to get ahead of every little thing. Trying to do whatever it could to get ahead of, ahead of me. All these rash moves. And eventually, like two minutes later, I, just, I, I, I realized, oh, I just passed that car. All right? I just drove by that car. I got caught behind this other car. I was like, oh, I was going like 65, maybe 70, maybe 75 on the freeway. But he was like like trying to go 100, and eventually I was like, oh, I just passed him by. And I've been that guy before where I've been that RAS driver trying to get so hard, get ahead so hard, make every move, like I calculate everything, I get in the line at target, I'm, I'm so calculating of every single line, that person has an old old person cashier, stay away from that one, this, this one looks young, energetic, these people seem like they're, and then, I'm, and then I'm looking over at them like, oh my gosh, that's where I should be in that line, and I should have went over there, and then I change lines, and then I'm like frantic, and oftentimes that's a picture of my faith constantly calculating constantly trying to fix everything maximize be efficient try to solve everything going left and right so much frantic activity so little peace so much fear and we think so much of it is up to us and when we see that again in the bible in isaiah chapter 30 just real briefly I'll go over this isaiah chapter 30 verse 1 through 2 you see Israel Israel is facing basically a war against Assyria and then here's what it says ah stubborn children declares the lord who carry out a plan but not mine who make an alliance but not of my spirit that they may add sin to sin who set out to go down to egypt without asking for my direction to take refuge in the protection of Pharaoh and to seek shelter in the shadow of Egypt. The people here, they see this big army, they know their odds to win are small, so they take a detour, they get impatient, they take things into their own hands. God was not moving in the way that he, they thought he should. They didn't see God, and so they just acted on their own. And in Isaiah, later in, the, in chapter 13, verse 15 and 18, here's what God says they should have done. For thus said the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, in returning and rest you shall be saved, in quietness and in trust shall be your strength. Therefore the Lord waits to be gracious to you, and therefore he exalts himself to show mercy to you. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are those who wait for him. What should they have done? In returning and rest, in quiet and trust. Blessed are those who wait for him. When your life doesn't go according to plan, or you're slowed, or you're bogged down, or that person isn't changing, oftentimes we may throw in the towel or just say, I give up, forget it. I won't keep praying. I won't keep loving them. I won't keep this job. I don't want to wait. And so we either give up or we make rash counter moves. We go ahead of God without even consulting and without even praying. Oftentimes we do something foolish when we try to take things into our own hands. Frantic, impatient Christians can't wait. They must march. They must do. They must act. They must fix. That's easier. That's more natural. Only the trained soldier can stand still and wait. The world says we need to do. Scripture says wait in prayer, in faithfulness, in integrity. Call upon God, plead for help, trust his promises, be humble like a child. My spirit will wait for you, and we pray and we pray. So often, instead of waiting upon the Lord, we try to take things into our own hands. We force a door open, and when that happens, we're working out of the flesh. We're walking in unbelief. We start thinking how our life goes is ultimately up to us and how hard we try. Christianity becomes about trying. Trying to fix people, even trying to save yourself, trying to solve all the problems in our lives, trying to eliminate anything that gets in the way and create our own little paradise on earth. But instead of trying, Christianity is first and foremost about trusting. Childlike faith, a childlike trust. If I'm honest, I wish I had enough faith to let go and let God. I wish I was more like that. As much as I may criticize people who are like that, I wish I had that kind of faith. Because Christianity, so often is a zigzag journey. We want it to be the straight line between two points. We try so hard, I'm gonna make my path straight. I'm gonna depend on my wisdom. I wish I had enough faith to just trust in the Lord, not lean on my understanding, instead acknowledge the Lord. He will make my path straight. And if you're not a Christian, and you're saying to yourself, I'm trying to be a Christian, you're missing it. You're missing it. Christianity is not about trying, it's about trusting It's this brilliant mechanism that God has used to save his people. Faith, or trust, is the word we use today. Trust in in itself, it's a dependence on another. It's relying on another. It's resting in another. So we get no glory. God gets all the glory. We're not saved by our knowledge or by our strength, because then we could boast. We are saved by faith. By trusting in the work of Christ on your behalf not trying to save yourself, not trying to be good enough. Trust in Christ, His work, and rest in that. And if you're a Christian, in our battle against impatience, recognize that at the root of that battle, it's a battle against unbelief. To battle impatience is a battle against unbelief. It's a battle for faith and trust. You know, again, not just try harder, trust more. Patience at its root has faith. That's why it's a fruit of the Spirit. Impatience at its root has unbelief. And whether you're talking about the smallest little interruption in your life, or you're talking about a disease that is going to ruin your dreams, whatever it is, small or great, at that moment, how you respond shows your theology, what you really believe. What we really believe about God shows up when life doesn't go our way. If you respond to every little interruption or every big interruption in your life with with grumbling or complaining, like in James 5, with grumbling, how many churches are destroyed by grumbling? Or you respond with praise and prayer. You're making a statement about what you believe about God, His nature, His timing, His goodness, His promises. Going back to James chapter 5, verse 7. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. And he's talking to an agricultural society where maybe some of these Christians were farmers. They knew what it was like to be patient. Farmers need patience. They plow, they scatter, and then they wait. Everything else is dependent at that point. They do what they need to do. But everything else at that point is dependent on God. His sovereignty. He's the one that will give a harvest. He's the one we plant, but he's the one that will give growth. You can't fast forward it. You can't say to God, hey, give me the harvest three months early. You have to submit yourself to God's timing, his control, his power to what he's doing in your life. You have to believe his promises, his word. In Psalm 135, it tells us how the psalmist patiently waits upon the Lord. He says, I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in His word I hope. If you're feeling impatient, you need to go to the word and fight the fight fight of faith with the word of God. And the Word of God says that we are called to believe with all our heart in the sovereignty of God, the absolute sovereignty of God. All the interruptions of your life are not wasted by God. Believe in His promises. He is bringing those disruptions into your life. John Piper again says, You battle the unbelief of impatience by using the promises of God to persuade your heart that God's timing, God's guidance, God's sovereignty are are going to take this frustrated, unproductive situation and making something eternally valuable out of it. We pray for rock-solid faith and trust in the sovereignty of God. Believe with all your heart that everything He does is right and good and loving. Pray that God will give you that assurance that trust in His timing And that He loves you and cares for you. And if He did not abandon you on the cross, He will not abandon you today. Believe with all your heart. Hope in His word that one day He will return and bring full closure and justice and a full picture for us. Every wrong will be made right. Justice will be served. We wait upon the Lord as we hope in His word. And so once again, for us frantic, impatient Christians, it's not a matter of just trying, but we need to believe, to trust, to rest, and to wait upon the Lord. Let me close with Isaiah chapter 40, verse 28 through 31, and I'm just going to read it for us and I'll pray. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 28 through 31. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Savior Church, we are called to wait upon the Lord. Wait upon the Lord. Let's pray. Father, as a church, we, and individuals, and for myself, we just want to come before you and admit how impatient we are with so many things in our lives. We want to confess that. We want to mourn over our lack of trust in you. And yet, we want to come back to you, God. Remember that you are not like us. You are sympathetic towards us and our weaknesses. We come to you and approach the throne of grace. You are long suffering. God, we wanna say we're sorry. Would you restore to us the joy of our salvation? Would we come back to the basics of repentance and faith, trusting in you with our salvation, with our sanctification, with our lives? Would we crucify faith in ourselves and fully trust in you? And may that be our confidence And so God, right now there are many things in our lives that maybe they don't seem clear. Things are dark. But help us to hold on to what we know is true. To trust in you and your goodness, your kindness, that you are merciful and compassionate. And as we wait, would you strengthen us in our inner being to be patient, God, we know it's a battle against unbelief and it's a war for control, but God, we want to remember that you are the one on the throne of our lives. Your will be done, not ours. Would you increase our faith and help us in our unbelief? May the fruit of the Spirit be born in our hearts as we hear your word and believe. Make us a patient generation who works out our salvation and yet acknowledges that it's you that gives us the energy to do so. Where we would do what we need to do on our human end, but then we would trust in you and rest in you. God, I pray that our church would be a church that waits upon you in prayer, in faithfulness, integrity, and in righteousness. Would you do that great work in us? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.